Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the big news of the week came out of the central banks. The U.S. got it started on Wednesday with the release of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee's minutes. And basically, the main takeaway from these minutes is that the primary concern that Janet Yellen has and the Federal Reserve in general is that inflation in the United States is too low. Prices are not rising fast enough for the Fed. That is their primary concern. Now, they didn't express a, a policy to deal with that concern, they just put it out there because they're still operating under the pretense that QE is ending on schedule or has ended and interest rates are going to begin to rise at some point, depending on the economic data, not based on a particular time period, but when the Fed feels the data is strong enough, they'll raise rates, although we don't have any, you know, concrete numbers. I mean, it's just based on, you know, they'll know. You know, kind of like the definition of pornography. You know, we know it when we see it. Uh, They can't really tell us what data would prompt them to raise rates, but apparently they'll know it when they see it, but they can't communicate that to us. But nonetheless, they are concerned about the low level of inflation. And I believe that they are laying the foundation for either the delay in the rate hikes or the launching of QE4, which I believe is inevitable anyway. But I do believe the pretense for QE4 is going to be that there's not enough inflation. Although it certainly could also be that the economy is weaker than they thought, although it may end up being the combination of both. But clearly, they are trying to prepare the markets for some type of additional uh, monetary ease based on the idea that we don't have enough inflation, which, of course, is all nonsense. But nonetheless, that is what the central banks uh, are are spewing. And, you know, the the real news, though, wasn't out of the Fed. I mean, the FOMC minutes really didn't have that much effect on the market. The big news was coming out of the central banks really in Japan, China and um, and Europe. All right. Let's. uh, Let's start with Japan. I mean, one of the news items that finally came out was that the sales tax hike that they were speculating would be delayed now has been delayed. So the hike from 8% to 10%, which was going to take place, I think, in October of 2015. Now we don't really know when it's going to take place, but it's not going to happen then. And Abe has actually called for a new election, which is kind of common uh, Japan, like a vote of confidence. Uh, and he's leading the charge now to delay the implementation of the sales tax hike because of the weakness in the economy. But of course, you know, nobody 
bothers to look at the irony because they're claiming that the economy has been weakened by the increase in prices that resulted from the higher sales tax. And so they don't want to increase prices anymore through the sales tax because of the recession, but they want to continue to create more inflation. They think that if prices go up because of inflation, then that's a boom for the economy. But if prices go up because of a sales tax, that's a bust. And I don't think consumers really care why prices are rising. If rising prices are good for the economy, it shouldn't matter why they rise, whether it's inflation or a sales tax. And if falling prices are bad for the economy, it shouldn't matter why they fall. Right. But what what they're trying to do is that they're trying to do one thing with their right hand and do the opposite thing with their left hand. They're trying to stop prices from rising by not raising the sales tax, but they're trying to force them to rise by increasing pressure on inflation. Right? In fact, they've said that we're afraid, even though inflation is above three percent, they're afraid that it might fall. That's why they have to keep doing more stimulus. Well, if inflation fell, wouldn't that take the sting out of the increase in the sales tax? Does no one not notice the absurdity of trying to argue both things, you know, argue two sides of the same coin? Nobody, nobody notices this but me because I never hear or anybody's talk about it. I never read anything about it. But Ch Japan promising more liquidity. But then, then on Friday, the yen had a bit of a reversal. It rallied off its seven-year lows because a minister in Japan said that the, the yen is falling too quickly that he's concerned that the, the yen's depreciation is happening too quickly. He's not concerned about the yen going down. He's just concerned that it's going down too fast. So I guess he wants it to go down more slowly, although I'm not really sure what the difference is, you know, because a weakening yen is impoverishing the Japanese. It is slowing the Japanese economy. And is he saying that, well, it's better if we get broke slowly as opposed to more rapidly? I say, you know, if you're going to you know, maybe just rip off the Band-Aid instead of peeling it off slowly— but those comments that the yen was falling too quickly caused the yen to rally, but uh, not the euro. Uh, the euro had its biggest one-day decline uh, in a while. Uh, the euro didn't make new lows on the year, though, although it's getting close to that vicinity. What happened in Europe? Well, Draghi came out in response you know, to the fact that inflation in the eurozone I think now is down to four-tenths of a percent. And so it's still positive, right? They don't have deflation, right? Prices are still rising. But he made it, he hears his quote, the ECB, we will, we, we will do whatever we can, right? We, we will do what we must to raise inflation and inflation expectations as fast as possible as our price stability mandate requires. Now, first of all, if their mandate is price stability, is it 0.4% closer to stable prices than 2%? Because, you know, if you take a look at the de definition of stable, it's basically the same, unchanged, right? Stable prices would be if prices were the same uh, in 2015 as they were in 2014, as they were in 2013. So the absolute price stability would be zero. Now, one way you can have stable prices is if they're up half a percent one year, down half a percent the next year, so that over time, they're stable, right? But what does the ECB's claim is price stability? Prices that go up 2% a year. Well, if prices go up 2% every year, 
then you know you've got a big difference let's say for the prices in 2020 than in 2014 right if every year they're going up two percent and it compounds two percent a year how is that stable prices to me if your mandate is price stability and prices are rising by 0.4 percent well you're 0.4 from stable if you push it up to to two, then you're much further away from your mandate than you currently are. So again, nobody notices the absurdity of claiming that you have a mandate for stable prices and then fighting against price stability and trying to create an increase in prices. Why don't they say our mandate is to have prices rise 2% every year? Why can't they just claim that's their new mandate? Their mandate is no longer price stability. That's the same thing for the Fed. Nobody wants stable prices. Everybody wants rising prices. So why can't they say it? Right? They're still clinging to the pretense that these central bankers want to defend the value of their currency, defend the purchasing power of their currency. Well, because of these comments, we, will, we must raise inflation quickly. We want more inflation fast. Now, imagine if they didn't use the word inflation. Right? Imagine if what Draghi said was that we want to make sure that the cost of living goes up fast. We want to make sure that Europeans have to pay more money for basic necessities, right? We want to drive up the cost of living and we want to drive down the standard of living, right? What if they said that? We want to make sure that people who are unemployed, in addition to unemployment, have to face higher prices at the supermarket, at the gas station, right? We want electric bills to go up. We want clothing bills to go up. What if, what if they actually said that? Nobody, obviously people would say, well, that's terrible. Why would you want that? Well, that's what he's saying. He's saying he wants prices to rise, He's saying that Europeans are not spending enough money on food, that their grocery bills are too low. We want to make sure that it costs more money to eat if you're living in Europe. That's what he's saying. How could that possibly be good? But the euro uh, obviously went down. And so Draghi is basically achieving his objective without doing anything. And again, this is all talking the euro down. They're not overtly doing anything. Everybody thinks, well, we're going to do something. But I think there's too much resistance uh, from the Bundesbank and, and, and the northern European countries, they don't want to go down the QE road. So all that we're really getting is jawboning the euro lower, which basically is going to raise the inflation rate because prices are going to go up. Right? Look, I talked earlier in the week about what's happening in Russia. The weak ruble is driving prices higher. They've got 6 or 7% inflation now in, um, in Russia, and it's pushing them into recession. They're not there yet, but retail sales are plunging. Because Russians are staying home, they're not shopping because their ruble doesn't buy much because the merchants have to keep raising prices. So raising prices is destroying demand and pushing Russia into recession. Why would it be any different for Europe? Why would rising prices be great for Europe when they're horrible for Russia? And they certainly haven't done anything for Japan because Japan has lifted their inflation rate from about unchanged or maybe slightly negative to positive 3% and they are back in recession. But I don't think that Europe is actually going to get around right, to actually doing all the QE because the weakness in the euro is going to translate into higher prices for Europeans and these low inflation numbers are going to go away. And now Draghi's not going to be able to claim that we need QE to raise the, the inflation rate because the inflation rate is going to go up all by itself just based on the rhetoric of QE. And of course, once the numbers are closer to 2% or even back north of 1%, 
then I think uh, the euro is going to start to rise. I mean, perversely, right? That when you have higher inflation, your currency gr- strengthens. And when your inflation is lower, your, your, your currency weakens. Again, this is the bizarro world in which we live in, where up is down and, and, and black is white. But we also got news out of the Chinese central bank. The People's Bank of China cut interest rates for the first time since uh, July of 2012. They reduced the one-year lending rate to 5.6% from 6%. So if you want to borrow money in China now for a year, it's going to cost you 5.6%. The deposit rate was lowered uh, from 3% to 2.75%. So if you want to put money in the bank in China, if you want to open up a bank account, you're going to get 2.75% which is about 2.7% more than Americans get when they put their money in the bank. But, you know, imagine what the U.S. economy would look like today if the cheapest you can borrow money for one year was 5.6%. We'd be in a depression. See, the Japanese economy can handle 5.6% interest rates. The U.S. economy can't. See, they're strong enough to handle it. We're broke. We have too much debt. We can't handle 5.6%, not even close. But nonetheless, they reduced interest rates. So look, now you have all the world's central banks, except the Fed, right? Now easing, right? Japan is stimulating. China is cutting rates. Europe is threatening QE. We're going to cause more inflation. So you have all the major central banks, three out of four of the major central banks in easing mode. The only holdout is the Fed, but it's not going to hold out much longer, right? Because they're already making overtures to the fact that they're also worried about low inflation, right? But the perverse thing about it is because the Fed is the lone holdout, because everybody thinks the Fed is the only major central bank that's not easing, then when any other central bank announces easy money, where does the money flow to escape QE? Because QE is good for assets, but it's lousy for your currency, in fact, that's why it's good for your assets, because your currency is losing value. And so asset prices rise in terms of a debased currency and people buy assets to escape uh, the weak currency as a hedge against inflation. But if there's one currency that everybody believes is not going to be debased, the dollar, everybody's going in. That's why when Europe announces we're going to create more inflation, people buy the dollar because they don't think America will. And that's also what is undermining the support for gold. And gold did rally on the week. In fact, it closed above 1200 This is the third consecutive week that gold has risen in price. In fact, year over year, the price of gold is only down by about six-tenths of 1% in dollar terms. In terms of the yen, in terms of the euro, gold's up on the year. So, you know, you would think with all the negativity about gold, all the bearishness, I mean, I bet if you ask the average investor, the average guy who watches, you know, CNBC, how was gold done in 2014? How, how much do you think it's down? Most people would probably say, oh, it must be down 5%, 10%, 20, who knows? I mean, some people might think it's down 20%. It's barely down. And that's, of course, you know, if you're an American, if you're a European, if you're a Japanese, it's, it's gone up, right? And it's possible that gold may even finish Um, the year in the black. I mean, it's very close. I mean, if we have a positive week next week, that would be four weeks in a row. In fact, if it's a big enough week, I forget if gold's up maybe 40 or 50 bucks, 
which is not, you know, outside the realm of possibility. I mean, it could happen. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it won't. But if it does, it will actually have a reversal month, right? Because November, early in November, we took out the October lows. And if we have a nice up week next week, we could take out the October highs. And that could be possible. You know, next week is the last trading week before the Swiss vote on their recommendum, uh, uh, referendum. Uh, so we could have uh, a move up in gold in anticipation of maybe there'll be a yes vote. There could be some other factors that are propping up gold. So it's possible. And then if we do do that, and if gold were to go above 1250, which again, you know, we're 12, 1202, 1203, I would say that the bottom is in and that the uh, bear market is over and the new bull market has begun. But it's premature to say that now because it's a big hurdle uh, for gold to have this outside month and jump up 50 bucks next week. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. And I'll, obviously, I'll talk about it on this blog if it does. But the main thing that is restraining gold, given all the central banks' uh, determination to create inflation, is the fact that everybody believes that the only central bank that's not going to be uh, you know, part of the party is the Fed. But the Fed is going to be the biggest partier. We're going to print more money, I think, than Europe and Japan uh, combined. So when Janet Yellen joined the QE party, right, I think gold is going to rally like it's 1999. That's what's going to happen. I mean, right now, people just assume that they can take refuge in the dollar. They're worried about QE in Europe uh, and Japan, so they're buying the dollar, but they're really jumping out of the frying pan into the fire because we're going to do more QE than anybody, especially as the economic numbers continue to weaken as they have, as they have all, all week. And I already went over the numbers that we got earlier in the week. So let's take a look at the numbers that we got on Thursday. Um, I'll start out with consumer prices. I mean, that number came out. I guess it was no big deal, uh, but it did come out a little bit higher than expected. They were looking for a minus 0.1, and instead it was zero. Year over year, increasing consumer prices, 1.7. And X food, X food and energy, right? You take out food and energy, prices were up 1.8%. 1.7% headline, 1.8% core, yet the Fed is still worried that inflation is too low. It's almost bang on their 2% number. I mean, how much closer can you get? I mean, not much. I mean, the core, which is what they seem to pay more attention to, is 1.8. I mean, all you could do is go up from 2 percentage points. I mean, I mean, as far as, I mean, if your goal is 2%, 1.8% is pretty much that. I mean, because in trying to get it to 2, you might end up at 2.1 or 2.2, which 2.2 is just as far away from 2 as 1.8. So for me, I mean, why would you be worried about inflation? Why would it even be a concern uh, if you wanted 2% and you're 1.8? Well, because really the Fed wants a lot more than 2%. They know that we're so indebted that the government needs much more inflation. Wall Street needs much more inflation. But of course, the last thing that consumers need is more inflation. That's like putting more nails in their coffin. But here is the big number. The PMI manufacturing number was supposed to come out at 56.5. That was a consensus. That was supposed to be higher than the 56.2 that we got the prior month. Instead, we got 54.7. That was the biggest miss, I think, on record based on what we actually got and what people thought. It was the lowest print in 10 months, and it's the third month in a row that manufacturing has gone down. Gee, 10-month low, three consecutive monthly declines. Yep, sounds like the U.S. economy is recovering. 
This is probably going to mean that fourth quarter GDP is going to be lower again than people think because the manufacturing index was so weak. Also, existing home sales, um, they came in, I think, slightly better than the consensus. Um, 5.26 million versus a estimate of 5.15 million. So that, I guess, could have been worse. The jobless numbers, there I think it was a bad number. No one's really worried about it. But weekly jobless claims came in at 293,000. Now that's down from the upwardly revised 200, um, and no, we 293,000. But they originally reported the 293,000 is 290. So based on the original uh, report from last week, this week's was up a thousand, but because they revised the prior week's um, uh, upward, it was down. But the consensus was for two hundred eighty-four thousand, so above consensus. And if you look at the trend, I think we've had four weeks in a row now uh, where the claims have been moving up, right? And so we're getting closer now to the three hundred thousand number, which I think we will exceed relatively soon. So people are not really paying attention to this backup in unemployment. But the the the, the good news or the, the kind of head scratcher that we got was the Philadelphia Fed. Right? That number came out, I mean it blew the estimates away. I mean I think it was like a, a record high or something or 20, 40 year high. I mean last month we got twenty point seven percent in that index. And the consensus was for a decline to 18, and they printed it at 40.8. I mean, it's so far up there that it even makes you scratch your head. But again, this is a lot of this is surveys, and I think a lot of it is clouded by the optimism that's out there among the people that are responding to these surveys. Um, and, and so to me, it may be a contrary indicator, because I think the uh, industrial production uh, numbers, uh, that we got seem much more, you know, realistic to me or the manufacturing numbers uh, than the results of these surveys. But the data on balance comes out weak or weaker than expected, especially when you look beneath the numbers and you see, you know, even in the housing data, you know, well, yes, there was some move up, but it's it's in multifamily. It's in it's in apartment units. And why are we building more multi-family units? Because people can't afford a single family home, right? The American dream was not to live in a fourplex or an apartment, right? To rent an apartment, according to the way the realtors redefined it when they basically, you know, took the American dream hostage. But a lot of people would prefer uh, to own some land, to have some space, uh, not just to rent a few walls in some apartment complex. Some people do. Young people, I think that there's a lot of uh, advantages to the flexibility and the lack of headaches associated with just renting an apartment as opposed to all the, the responsibilities inherent in home ownership. But generally, when people get married and have kids, um, they get a house. And one of the reasons that fewer people are buying houses, and I talked about this in an earlier podcast, is because fewer people are getting married and fewer people are having kids. And why is that? Because they can't afford it, because the jobs are lousy, so they don't earn enough money. And meanwhile, they've all got college degrees, 
very you know limited prospects for good jobs and lots of debt. So before they can take on the expenses of, of kids, they first need to relieve themselves of the obligation to repay their student loans. So that's another reason why when you're getting uh, these housing numbers uh, and you look you know, beneath the headline, you'll see that it's generally the, the multifamily construction that is driving the, the production numbers. We got more economic data coming out next week. In particular, I'm going to be looking at the revised estimate, the first revisions to third quarter GDP. We're going to get that number on Tuesday. So I'm looking for a downward revision from the 3.5% that was originally uh, forecast. We'll see if we can actually revise it below 3%. Nobody is really looking for that. I think they are looking for maybe uh, a little bit of a downward uh, revision to that number. Let me see. The consensus, I think, is, yeah, 3.3. And I think the range is from 3 to 3.8. So there's some people that are looking for uh, an upward revision, but the lowest anybody has is 3%. So uh, if we get sub 3%, I think that could be a big deal. Uh, But again, this is not going to be the final revision. They're going to revise it again in the following month. So who knows where it's going to end up. We also have got other, we got personal income and spending numbers coming out. We got new home sales, pending home sales, uh, Chicago, Chicago PMI later in the week, uh, Dallas uh, Fed manufacturing survey, PMI flash survey coming out on Monday, also Chicago Fed national activities index. So there's a lot of numbers, Richmond Fed coming out. Uh, so Case Schiller, another big number on Tuesday, the Case Schiller index We'll see. I would look for continued erosion in in prices, particularly that year-over-year trend. Uh, you know, right now we still have a positive 5.6% year-over-year. I think the consensus is that it's going to drop to 4.7, uh, but I think there's going to be continued downward pressure on real estate price. So we've got a lot of economic news uh, coming out next week. We'll be talking about it. Oh, before I finish this podcast, I wanted to make an announcement Remember, when I, when I finished the radio show, the, the Peter Schiff show, one of the things that we did is I still had, I had a, a, a bunch of The Kingdom of Malts, which was a book that my dad wrote. And it was originally supposed to be part of The Biggest Con, but the publishers edited it out. They thought it was just, you know, maybe it didn't need to be there. But my dad loved the story. And so on his own, he came out with The Kingdom of Malts, and he published that separate book, uh, and it was the first book that he published from his own uh, publishing company, Freedom Books. And I always loved that book as a kid. And I had a bunch of copies of it. And so I offered to sell some autographed copies. And they had been selling on Amazon and eBay for $150, $200 a copy because they're very rare. And, of course, I'm sure those copies were not in great condition. Mine were in pristine condition because they were still in the original boxes. Uh, from when they were first uh, published. And, you know, we sold quite a few of them. We still have some left. But at the time, I really wanted to uh, sell copies of The Biggest Con, which is the first book that my dad wrote, initially published by Arlington House in hardcover. And my dad got the rights to the book from Arlington House and published it himself in soft cover. And I had some of those books, but I only had about maybe a dozen of them. And I, I, you know, I didn't really know if I, how many I could sell or how I could deal with having such a few quantity. But it turns out we, when we were moving, 
uh, our Connecticut office, I had a storage facility where I had previously moved a lot of books that I had had that my dad was storing in, in Vegas. When he went into prison, he had the storage facility that he was storing stuff in, and there were some books there. And I had all this stuff transferred uh, to Connecticut, and I had put some stuff in storage, and I forgot what I had there. And when I moved all this stuff out, I was very surprised to find that most of the boxes that I had were, in fact, the biggest con. So I now have a, 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 a much bigger supply of biggest cons. I mean, you know, not nearly enough for everybody and not nearly as many as I have of the, the Kingdom of Malts. But uh, I've got enough that I can sell them. So we, are, we now have at shiftbooks.com, go to shiftbooks.com, you can buy uh, a brand new copy just out of the box in perfect condition of The Biggest Con, which I think is the single most influential book on economics that I ever read. And I've read it several times over the years. And, you know, for me, every time I, I read that book, I hear my father's voice in my head when I read it because it reads the way he talks. Um, but I think it's a fantastic book. And it's as relevant today as it was uh, in the early 1970s when it was first published. And I think if you read it now with the benefit of hindsight, you can see how right my father was. And how wrong just about everybody else was at the time, all the experts, regarding their, their forecast for what was going to happen to the U.S. economy. So it's a great read. We're, I'm selling copies of The Biggest Con for $30. And uh, if you want another copy of, the, uh, of Kingdom of Malts, it's $25. So $30 for The Biggest Con, $25 for Malts. If you want to buy one of each, Right, we're doing. I'm doing this Christmas special, or you want to buy a biggest cot and have an extra copy of Malts if you've already bought one to give it as a gift, or maybe you want to give somebody, you know, both books. Uh, you can buy them both for fifty dollars. Of course, there is some shipping and handling, and if you live in Connecticut, I guess there's a sales tax anyplace else. It's not there, but I'm going to sign all the books too. So they're going to be autographed copies. They're not going to be autographed by my dad, but they will be autographed by me. And who knows? I mean, these are in perfect condition. So if you take care of the books, right, uh, maybe they'll have some kind of collector's value. I don't know. Uh, you never know, but they might. I mean, and look, they were going for a lot of money uh, on, uh, on eBay and, and Amazon because there weren't that many left. And again, those are mainly used copies, right? These are not used copies. These are probably the only brand new copies of these books that you can find. The other books that are for sale, somebody read, read them. And if you're talking about a soft cover book uh, that's been around for 10, 20 years, 30 years, and it's been read, I mean, it's not going to be in great shape. I mean, the cover is going to be bent. The pages can be frayed. Um, these are in perfect condition. They've never seen sunshine. They've been boxed up since the day they were printed. So again, while supplies last, and so if your, your money comes in and the books are gone, it will be refunded uh, promptly. But for now, uh, we, got, we got plenty because we just announced them for sale. So if you act quickly, you will be guaranteed pretty much to get both the biggest con and a copy of the Kingdom of Malts. Uh, you can buy them separately again, or you can get the package two for 50. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. 
They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.